0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to add my word of welcome to what Alyssa said in the announcements at the beginning. If you're here for the first time, or if you've just been visiting with us for a few weeks, we hope that you will feel at home here. Now, if you are just joining us for the first time, or if you haven't been with us for a while, we are in the middle, towards the end, actually, of a sermon series. Um, We've been studying a book of the New Testament in the Bible called First Corinthians. We call it a book, but really it's a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a community of Christians in a city called Corinth. It was written about 20 years after Jesus left this world, the ascension we call it. He went to be in heaven with his father. And after that, we find that the church really started to grow. And we read a passage that that tells the story of the beginning of that as our call to worship, the story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church. It started in Jerusalem and it spread to Judea and Samaria, and then missionaries like Paul took the gospel message, the news about Jesus, what had happened with the resurrection to the ends of the earth throughout the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world. So Paul had planted the church in Corinth to which he was writing, and he's concerned about what he's been hearing about divisions in the church, and we've seen that uh, over the months that we've been reading this letter together. So as you've heard, today's Pentecost Sunday. It's the day we remember and celebrate the Holy Spirit coming on the church and empowering God's people. And this morning, we're reading part of 1 Corinthians that does not mention the Spirit once. What were we thinking? Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit is sneaky that way, as we're going to see. Let's pray. Spirit, we continue to ask you to come among us and to speak your truth into our hearts and minds so that our faith doesn't depend on our ability, on our reason, on human words, on the things we can build, but only on your grace and your power. Would you point us to the cross? Show us more of Jesus today, we ask. Amen. So we're picking up where we left off in chapter 12. We're going to read the end of chapter 12 and the whole of chapter 13. I'm going to pause a couple of times during the reading to explain some things. So starting from verse 27 in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So that opening verse really summarizes what we saw last week in chapter 12. Paul described the local church as being like the body of Christ. And like any body, it has separate parts, and yet they all work together as one body. A lot like Mr. Potato Head. Am I the only one who loves Mr. Potato Head? I know I'm not because someone emailed me this week to ask for a copy of this slide for a class they're teaching. so. So we have unity and we have diversity, and the Holy Spirit makes this possible. And the diversity comes in these different gifts that the Spirit supplies. And that's what Paul talks about next. In verse 28, he says, And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So I don't want to leave you in suspense. And so I'll say that the answer to all these questions is no. All are not apostles. Which means, the word apostle means sent one. So those were leaders who founded churches. All are not prophets, people to whom the Spirit gave a word that revealed God's will. All are not teachers, teachers who clarify Scripture and pass on truth. And on the list goes. The point is that we're different, and we have different gifts. And we should respect those differences. So why would Paul say, as he does at the end of that section we just read, now eagerly desire the greater gifts? After all, he's been trying throughout this letter... To communicate that there are no elite gifts. You're not superior to someone because you may have this gift or that gift. Well, we have to wait until chapter 14 next week to really get into this. But let me say that Paul favors gifts that all can understand, gifts that build up the whole body of Christ. He favors those gifts over gifts that are more for individuals. But now Paul does something surprising. He stops. You know, when you're in the middle of a flow, it's rare that you would hit pause. But that's what he does, he calls a timeout effectively, and he offers us a beautiful digression. He steps aside from his main argument, and he promises to show us the best thing yet, the ultimate way forward for the church that is so divided. It's the key to ending that division, Then and now. Here he goes. And yet I will show you the most excellent way, he writes. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship," When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. So, lately, I've been rediscovering the music of Amy Mann. She's an American singer-songwriter, and she's one of my all-time favorites. I was listening to her amazing Grammy-award-winning song, Save Me, this week, and all of a sudden, the words hit me. The meaning kind of sank in. You kind of sometimes have that sort of an epiphany, right, when you're listening to a song. And I realized that Amy Mann is a great opening act for Paul in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So the song starts like this. You look like a perfect fit for a girl in need. So far, so good, right? It's a song about love. Girl meets boy. He's a perfect fit. But hold on a second, maybe not. She goes on, for a girl in need of a tourniquet. Not where we thought this was headed. A tourniquet is something you tie around your arm or your leg to stop yourself from bleeding to death. So she's in trouble, and she knows it, and another boy isn't going to help. So she asks, but can you save me? Come on and save me. She's not looking for someone who's a perfect fit. She's looking for a savior, it turns out that's what she needs. Why? Well, she tells us next. If you could save me from the ranks of the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone. I love that. Most love songs we hear are about me, my need for love, me getting love, searching for love for me. But here, Amy Mann is honest and eloquent like few love songs are. She admits she's a freak who suspects she could never love anyone. That's a confession that I think points to the most basic problem we have. We are selfish people who want to be loved, but we are not capable of truly loving anyone. That's the freak show of human nature. And that's what Paul talks about, really talks about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's start by being clear that this chapter wasn't inserted into the letter by some ancient Greek wedding planner. (laughs) It sometimes feels like all anyone knows about this passage, if they know anything, is verses 4 to 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and on it goes. That part sets things up nicely for, you may kiss the bride, because it's inspiring, it's poetic, it's a hymn to love. But really, it's about something else entirely. It's about Amy Mann's tourniquet. It's about how we're all freaks who don't have a clue about love. It's not about your romantic fantasy. It's about how God is calling us to love each other as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, in the mess and failure and scandal of the church, and to reach out with that love as broken vessels filled with the Spirit. And it's about how badly we do that. We are freaks who need a Savior. In chapter 13, Paul pauses right in the middle, the meatiest part of his letter to the church in Corinth, as he's describing how all the parts make up one body, how all the gifts can work together. He stops to show us the key. So this is the climax of 1 Corinthians. From verse 1 here, Paul launches into a lyric reprimand of the practice of religion, the empty practice of religion. He's telling the Corinthians off, and us as well, for focusing on the externals, on behavior, for trying to prove how spiritual we are, for always worrying about our image, how we'll look to other people, for promoting ourselves. And he gets personal about it here in a hurry. He lists item by item the sources of pride that the Corinthians had. Speaking in tongues comes first. Speaking in tongues was a way of expressing worship, like a personal prayer language. Paul is not impressed. He says that tongues are useless without love. The same goes for prophecy, the gift of delivering a word of revelation from God, which explains mysteries or conveys knowledge. Normally, this is Paul's favorite gift, more on that next week, but even for him, prophecy is useless without love. The same holds for great faith, as well as for acts of service and self sacrifice. You can think of someone like Mother Teresa. Even if you give up your whole life to serve the poor, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, maybe out of guilt or to win the praise of others, then it's worth nothing in the end. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say God can't use these gifts for good even when they're wrongly motivated. And he also puts the focus right on himself. He says, I am nothing, I gain nothing. So this is personal. It's between each one of us and God. The exterior of our lives is one thing, but what matters most is on the inside. So let's explore this little word love a little more. Just this past week, I've heard people and I've been listening, talk about love, loving things. Ton of different ways they've used the word love. One person said, I love sushi. Hmm. Someone else to whom I might be married said, I love it when you do the dishes. And then in parentheses, please do them more often. Someone said, I love summer. Amen to that. I love the Beatles. I love you, Dad. That was my favorite. I love patios. And once, possibly twice, I may have whispered softly to myself, I love hot sauce. (laughs) Let's face it, we are totally confused about love. It's a slippery little word. It can mean many different things or nothing at all. One thing's for sure, despite all the weddings, Paul is not talking about romantic love here. In the four loves, C.S. Lewis lists the main forms of love. Affection, friendship, eros, and charity. So the Greek word eros points to a certain kind of love. It has sexual connotations, and we get our word erotic from it. But eros refers more broadly to romantic love. This kind of love gets a lot of attention in our world. I think we actually worship it in our culture. But Paul is not talking about eros here in chapter 13. The word he uses for love is agape. And the difference between these two kinds of love is that eros, or romantic love, tends to focus on its own satisfaction. It's a demanding, attention-seeking kind of love, and it's exclusive. Agape love, on the other hand, is a giving love. It's a love that puts others first, that tries to include them. So here's the question I want to put to us this morning. How can we, both individually but also especially as a church community at Courtright, how can we have relationships that are rooted in a love that wants to give before it receives? In a love that is not primarily selfish or utilitarian, a means to an end. A love that doesn't exploit others or look, first of all, for its own needs to be met. God calls us to live lives that are not focused on ourselves because that's right, but also because it's good for us. He calls us together into communities that aspire most of all to embody a love that serves others, a love that shares, a love that promotes the common good, love that breaks down walls. That is agape love, sacrificial love, community love. And that's what you're going to find at the core of all true love, of all love that lasts. And ultimately, this is God's kind of love. And He gives us the gifts we need to nurture it, especially in the church. So Paul paints this beautiful picture of love for us in verses four to seven. It's not comprehensive. This isn't a definition of love. No, what Paul's doing here is offering a contrast to the Corinthians' pride and to our pride also. Their behavior is the opposite of love. They're impatient, they're unkind, they're envious of people who have greater status, They're boastful about their own abilities. They're proud. They're rude. They're self-serving. They're angry. They're unforgiving. And on it goes. I don't know how you hear those words describing love. But I know every time I read it, I feel the contrast. As inspiring as this picture of love is, I doubt I'm the only one who reads this and shakes his head. Because we don't experience this kind of love very often. We are disappointed in love. But the real kicker for me always comes in verse 8, where it says, love never fails. Really? Who can measure up to a love like that? I fail all the time. I fail at loving Judith, my wife. I fail at loving my kids. I fail at loving so many people in my life. And all of us are failures when it comes to a love that is this good. But maybe that's where Paul's leading us intentionally. I think the invitation to seek God's truth, to find a relationship with Him, only starts as we admit to our weakness. When we realize how sick we are, in a way, when we admit that we are freaks, we're freaks who can't even begin to do the thing that matters most in the world, according to God, and that is to love others. Only as we admit to all that are we actually being honest. So when you're disappointed in love, and we've all been there, you have three choices as I see it. First, you can try harder. That's the way of religion, that's the way of self-help. It also demands that we hide our brokenness and our failure and pretend like everything's okay. We cultivate that image, that appearance. Or second, when you're disappointed in love, you can grow cynical about love. You can pretty much abandon those ideals. You can simply lower your expectations, be realistic, right? Or that disappointment can make you bitter and angry as you end up blaming other people in your life for the disappointment. So that's the second thing that can happen. The third possibility is that We can confess that we cannot do this on our own. Now, that doesn't sound promising, but it is what Paul calls the most excellent way that leads to love. Christians call that repentance. It is the only way that we can get to God, it's what realigns us with His kingdom and His truth and grace. It brings renewal, healing, and restoration as we actively take our place in the body of Christ. That's why Paul uses this image of body, right? Because a body is made to move. It's made to exercise. It's made to be in motion. A sermon or a thousand sermons will never do the trick. Paul invites us to show up. He says, by serving others, you will discover this excellent way I'm talking about. And as we do that, as we grow in relationships, we experience, we start to experience the honesty, the repentance that can come face to face with a friend, with someone we trust. When I was walking the Camino, of Santiago, when I was on my pilgrimage last month, I experienced something I've never experienced in my life. I experienced silence and solitude in a way that I'd only read about, really. So you could try this, really. If you walk alone for eight hours a day, you will find that a lot of things fade. The noise The complication, the preoccupations, and a lot of simple things come into focus. And I realize that I am that clanging gong, that symbol that Paul talks about. We all are. We crave attention. We love to be busy. We don't want to be alone. We run from that. Silence scares us. On my pilgrimage, I also came to appreciate my feet more. Look at them. Yeah. That wasn't an altar call. No, not at all. Totally optional to look at the pastor's feet. What I realized is that I depend on my feet. And when I walk 30 kilometers in a day, they really hurt. They are important in a way I hadn't understood. Tim Keller writes about this in one of his books. He says that the only time we think about a part of our body is when it's hurting. I'm not thinking about my toes right now. Actually, I kind of am because of <laughs> Justin over there. Um, I kind of want to cover them up. <laughs> feeling a little vulnerable up here. Um, but when I, had, when I was on the Camino, I got a blister on one of my toes on my right foot, and I thought about my toe constantly. So Keller draws an analogy between this reality that we think about parts of our body more when they hurt. He says, when you're always thinking about yourself all the time, it tells you that you've got a deeper problem. It tells you that you're hurting in a deeper place, that your your soul is what's hurting. Because if you were well, if your soul wasn't hurting, if it was whole, you wouldn't be thinking about yourself all the time. You'd be healthy enough to think about others. I think that's profound. Paul speaks into that dilemma And he gives us reason to not succumb to despair at how self-centered we are. He gives us reason for hope in verses 9 and 10. He says we're incomplete. Right now we know in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. Now the Holy Spirit is not named in this passage, but he's everywhere here, pointing to Jesus. That is the primary function of the Spirit. Love never fails. That could be judgment on us, but instead it points to Christ. The story of Jesus tells of the incarnation of God's love, of it coming in the flesh, of perfection coming personally among us, and of the fulfillment of love. And we're not at the center of this drama. We can't love this way, we fail all the time. But God knows us well enough and he loves us passionately enough to have sent his son, love embodied, to overcome what separates us. And Jesus accomplished that in the ultimate act of agape love when he laid down his life for us at the cross so that we can be forgiven. We don't need Amy Mann's tourniquet because the blood of Jesus has covered our sins. Amen. That's a promise for when we're struggling, when we have our doubts, when we're feeling at our most unloved. We can only receive God's love as a gift. And as we gather around this table shortly, that is the message of the gospel. Now we see but a poor reflection, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. So we believe that perfection has already come in Jesus. But even as we follow our risen Lord, we do not see what we long to see. Our vision is clouded. Only a poor reflection presents itself. And so we struggle. The New Testament is full of stories of the church's struggles. But our hope lies in God present with us. He knows us fully better than any other person ever could or will, and yet he loves us completely. And we know that one day, we will also know God that way. We will be the church triumphant. I love that song we sang, God the Spirit, uh, where, what's the line, Justin? Shall the church now faint or fear when the comforter is near? The comforter is the Holy Spirit, He empowers us. He fills us up when we are empty. God will be with us face to face, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have vanished. It's a future that we're promised, and Paul describes it in greater detail in chapter 15 of this letter. We'll come to that in a few weeks. The resurrection life. For now, we can be reassured that God knows how messed up we are, broken and yet proud, weak and yet somehow boastful. Despite this, he always protects us. He never fails us. He always forgives us and he loves us completely. That's good news. Christ loved us first so that we can love and serve each other. Let us pray. Lord, we confess that we have failed to love you as you deserve, and we're failures when it comes to loving our neighbors, even those closest to us. Give us humility as we stop and honestly admit these things. Show us that our pride and our self-centeredness are worthless in your eyes. And then fill our emptiness with your Holy Spirit. Pour your love into our lives. It's only by your grace that we can see others as you see them. Not to be used, not as revolving around our own needs, but as people who you love and who you call us to give ourselves to in service. Would you lead us today in the week ahead to someone whom we can do that with. Show us how we can serve you and help us to grow in love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.